Good morning. So uh, my name's Nathan. I've not had a chance to meet you, so glad you're here. We're continuing our series through the book of Philippians in a wonderful passage that is one of those passages that is quite known in all of Scripture. And so I want to pray for us now as we render ourselves to study it and think about it and live in light of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the glory of Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. And we confess our need of him. For God, apart from him, we have no chance to know you. But in him, we have everything. And so direct our eyes now, God, to the glories of Christ and our infinite need for him, for justification. We pray in his name. Amen. So uh, I'm not sure when it was, but it was um, a little over 15 years ago. My guess would have been roughly 15 years. Not sure the exact day, but uh, I read a book uh, up uh, at that portion of my life. I read a book that really changed my life. Uh, I was uh, had grown up in the church. I read the Bible a lot. Uh, I'd been to Christian camps. I was even sprinkled um, in the Methodist church when I was 13. Um, but I'm not quite sure I would have understood the gospel. And so this book, when I read it, really began to help me clarify what the gospel meant. It's a book that was so helpful to me. I would really encourage you to read it yourself if you're looking for a good book to read. It's a book uh, entitled God is the Gospel by a pastor by the name of John Piper. He was a pastor for about 33 years up in Minnesota. And the book arrested me from the beginning because it asked this question at the very front end of the book that arrested me. And if you've heard me preach more than a few times, you've probably heard me ask this question because it was so arresting to me. I want to ask it to you to help us get started to thinking about this passage. This is the question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there. Now I can remember reading that paragraph, that question in particular, and being arrested, just sort of stopping in my tracks. Because even though I had grown up around Christianity, even though I understood myself to be a Christian, I was shocked at how comfortable I was at saying yes to that question. Now that shook me to my core because I knew enough about what was going on there to know that my answer to yes to that question wasn't okay. I knew Jesus needed to be there. And so my comfortability with even even thinking about saying yes to that really exposed some things. And so the author goes on to explain why the answer to that question should be a very quick and clear no. He says, quote, the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct the vision, that, that vision and that pleasure. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savoring it as our highest treasure. Behold your God is the most gracious command and the best gift of the Gospel. If we do not see Him and savor Him as our greatest fortune, we have not obeyed or believed the Gospel. Strong words. And I can't think of a more fitting way to introduce the passage here in front of us here in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So if you were like I was some 15 plus years ago, 
and you were tempted to say yes to that question just a moment ago, well, let me plead with you this morning to listen and listen carefully. Uh, and even if you said no, even if you understood that it was a no there, that you shouldn't say yes to that, let me encourage you to listen so that you might be reminded of your first love. And so as we approach this passage here in Philippians 3, there are mountain ranges in the Bible, and some of those mountain ranges sort of rise up above the others in order to sort of help us see with some clarity the beauty of the gospel. And I think this passage is one of those peaks that kind of rise above the other glorious hills of Scripture. So clear, Paul is, on the words as to the wonderful clarity of the gospel. And so it's a unique opportunity for us as a church to sit and think about the clarity of the gospel as a church and be oriented toward it so we would know what it really means to live. And so two simple points this morning. Two simple points. Count all things as loss. Two, for the sake of knowing Christ. Count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And I want to be clear from the very front end of this. We're talking about justification this morning. There's a difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is the moment we are declared righteous in Christ by faith. Sanctification is those times in which we grow up into that faith. Paul here is talking about justification. Being declared innocent, righteous in Christ. So, let's think about this. Counting all things as loss. And we can't forget the context of these verses. You heard them read by Berkeley just a moment ago. But let me remind us of where we have been so that we can sort of fall on the weight of Paul's words here. Paul is writing to a church that he helped begin some ten years prior to this letter as he's in prison. Uh, And he's writing to this church to build them up into the unity of Christ. And then go on to then complete, he says, my joy. But I think we could also say their own joy, our joy, by being united in that gospel and being spent out for that gospel. Well, the language we've been using, Paul's writing so as to bring about their enjoyment of the gospel and their advancement of the gospel. It's what he's wanting to see happen in the life of these people. And so it's because of the gospel that Paul says there in chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. He can say that while still saying what he goes on to say in verse 10, that he desires to share in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. So I think we'd all agree that if someone can find cause to rejoice, even in the times of suffering, they have discovered gold, right? I think we would agree with that. So the gold that Paul discovered was, as he says there, the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now it's critical to understand how Paul discovered the gold of the glory of Christ. That's what he's been explaining here in this part of the letter. Namely, we need to understand that that he didn't find the gold. The gold found him. That is to say that the grace of God tracked him down. In verse 2, he warns the church of people that were teaching false gospels. He represents them as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. And the reason why he was so strong in this language about them was because they were destroying the nature of the gospel. They were attempting to destroy the nature of the gospel. And they were lying then, because of those false gospels, they were lying then about the greatness of the glory of God and also then the joy of the gospel. And so he says there in verse 3, to bring about more clarity to the gospel against those false teachers, he says that we are saved By the Spirit of God. So important to understand those words. Which is another way of saying they weren't saved because of anything that they had done. 
but only because of what God had done in Christ Jesus on the cross as the Spirit applied the work of Christ in their hearts through faith. In other words, the true Gospel does not boast in anything that we may have done to attain salvation, to attain righteousness, to attain faith. The true Gospel boasts only in Christ because He was the one that saved us. We did not save ourselves. That then causes Paul to say what he says in verse 3. We then put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. That is, we do not trust anything that we do in order to attain justification. It's all of God's grace. That's what he's communicating here. So then Paul then moves on to our passage this week. He then moves on to list his resume so as to illustrate his spiritual resume, so as to illustrate that if anybody could have put confidence in the flesh for justification, for innocence, for righteousness, it would have been him. It would have been him, but he doesn't. So Paul wants to show the Philippians, he wants to show us that no matter how religious you might be, no matter how great a spiritual tradition you may come by, it contributes nothing to salvation. It is only by the Spirit, by grace, through faith, that we can come to know Him that is said to be of surpassing worth. Surpassing worth. Verse 5, he goes on. So here he goes into his resume. Verse 5 says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. That would have been just the right thing to do for his spiritual tradition. He lists that he was the of the tribe of Benjamin, which, by the way, would have been a cherished tribe because that would have been the same tribe that Israel's first king came from. Paul's namesake, Saul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he's probably referencing this so as to indicate that he could speak the language of the covenant people. Uh, and so all of these things here that he that he lists up to this point are things that reference the tradition that Paul came come out of. He came completely out of the pure tradition of God's people. Now, he's not mentioned anything that he's done more so than just sort of this tradition that he's grown up into. In other words, what Paul's doing here is he wants to highlight he wants to highlight his religious pedigree, his religious tradition. So, friends, just because you were from the lineage of God's people, this is what he's saying, just because you're from the lineage of God's covenant people, that meant nothing about whether or not you were saved, whether or not you were declared righteous. So if we were to say it like this, we might say it today, that like you might say, well, I was the son of a great pastor. Or, or if you were raised in a tradition uh, where infants were baptized, you might say that I was baptized as an infant. You might say, well, I went to church every single, most every week. I came from the best Christian tradition. And by saying this, in the context of putting no confidence in the flesh, uh, Paul is saying, when we think about it this way, that these traditions can produce no amount of righteousness. No amount of salvation, that is. So then he goes on, he begins to highlight his own personal accomplishments. You see those down there, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, we use the word Pharisee in Christian circles so as to illustrate what Paul is illustrating here, that these guys knew all the external rules. They knew them all. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, we're reminded, right, this is where we met Paul. We met Paul, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, in Acts 8, Acts 9, we find Paul traveling town to town, hurting and even killing Christians. 
And so he's saying that he had a kind of passion for those that he understood to be apart from the law, that he was even willing to go and hunt them down. That's how great his zealousness was. That's how great his persecution was. And then he goes on to say, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, friends, to be clear, he's not saying that he was righteous apart from Christ. What he's doing is he's simply making the case that if someone were to accuse him of not consistently obeying the external laws of God, then he would have been blameless. He would have been above reproach. He just would obey the rules really, really well. That's what he's referencing there. And so once again, let me try and contextualize what Paul is saying here as it relates to sort of using your own religious accomplishments to say that you have salvation. See, Paul is basically saying that here is he has the equivalent of a PhD in theology from Westminster Theological Seminary. That's what he's saying. I got that. What he's also saying, he's hardly never missed a quiet time. He's never missed church, hardly ever. He even comes to church on Memorial Day weekend. You know? I mean, that's how great Paul is. I mean, he's that zealous. He holds his hands up, Paul does, in worship. Right? That's what he does. He's so zealous. And even about mission trips, he even puts YouTube clips up online to talk about how great we need to be sharing the gospel with the nations and how much money he's been spending and how much time he's been spending. That's what Paul is saying he has done. That's what he says has contributed nothing to his justification. And I think these words make us think of the images Jesus gave to us regarding those religious zealots in Matthew chapter 23 when he called them hypocrites. Hypocrites. He said, Jesus says in Matthew 23, quote, For you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. Again, Jesus is referencing just the smallest of things. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus goes on to say, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And then listen to Jesus' solution there in Matthew 23. He says, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that the outside then might also be clean. So friends, I hope you notice there when we read that, Paul and Jesus are teaching the same gospel. Exact same gospel. Paul was agreeing with Jesus when he listed out all of his accomplishments and said that they were nothing in terms of manifesting his righteousness that was internal. See, Paul was saying that the cup and the plate were clean on the outside. That's all he's been saying. But on the inside, the place Jesus said needed to get clean first, where his heart was, it was dirty. It was dirty. It was unclean. He was not righteous. So going back to last week's message, Paul came to see that external religion accomplishes nothing towards internal justification. His heart, friends, had to be circumcised. And that's something that none of us can do. That's something that God had to do. And so Paul could say that whatever gains, then that ever gains that external religion got him, they gained him nothing in terms of bringing him near to God. And isn't that what we're after? Being near to God. Being in His presence and accepted in His presence. Not being under the judgment of God. He counts all external religion as loss. Or as it says there in verse 8, He counts it as rubbish. Now the word there is even more graphic than you may realize. 
I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but let's just say it has something to do with something you do in the re- in the restroom. It's dung, he says. He calls it dung or garbage. All that stuff is just that. It accomplishes nothing. Now, pay close attention to what he says there in verse 9. Note there in verse 9, he says that he understands himself to have had no, no righteousness of his own that came from the law. That is his obeying the law. He understands that his obeying the law, there was no righteousness for salvation that was being produced by his obeying the law. Nothing that came from him, he says. And so, friends, you should know if you're here and you're evaluating the Christian faith, this is very important for you to understand. You may have heard before that Christianity and all other world, world religions are pretty much the same. And I do think world religions operate on the whole do pretty much work the same, except Christianity. See, right here is where Christianity separates itself from the rest of world religions. See, what Paul is saying here is that where other world religions can say that you can bring about righteousness through your obedience to some law, Christianity cannot. So whether it be those religions which are clearly different than Christianity, religions like Judaism, which demand the very things Paul says are loss, are dung here, or it's Islam's demands of the five pillars, or even Eastern religions' demands to perform in order to achieve an inner state of peace. All these things, Paul's saying, are lies if they bring about actual salvation, righteousness, justice. Paul says there's nothing in those things that actually can contribute to salvation. They're all garbage, he's saying. But as I said last week, there are also other religions that take the name of Christ and do the same kinds of things by their adding to the gospel so as to produce a righteousness that comes from us. So from Roman Catholicism's seven sacraments to Eastern Orthodox's even their own sacramental system to the Church of Christ's demand for baptism by immersion. Or even some Protestant churches who in practice demand certain traditions be upheld in order to deem someone saved. See, friends, the human heart seems to want to control righteousness. Wants to control righteousness by their demanding that we can perform it on our own by our maybe being inspired by the example of Christ in order to perform it on our own. But Paul looks at all of this and he says, rubbish. Rubbish. Righteousness does not come on our own from the law. Righteousness, as we will see in a moment, comes from God. That's why we need to be saved by the Spirit of God, by no work of our own, by grace. And grace is unmerited favor. Getting something we do not deserve. The only way we, man, sinful man can be saved is not by obeying the law on our own, by religion. But God in His infinite grace has to save us and do heart surgery on His own. And so this is why Paul can say so clearly, all my religious deeds, they are garbage in terms of making any contribution towards my salvation God has to be the one to save us God has to be gracious and meet us in our spiritual need which by the way this reminds us why Jesus says in the very first beatitude he said blessed are the what poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven see Jesus saved his harshest words for the harshest critics of poverty he loved the weak because the weak knew their need of him And they saw in him as a gracious Savior that came to give him everything that they had, even though they'd done nothing to deserve it. Nothing to deserve it. Jesus loved those. This is why, friends, this is why the prostitute could be so comfortable in the presence of Christ as she wiped Jesus' feet with her tears. 
See, he was glorious to her. Beautiful. And she was empty and in need of justification. And so she came to him to be full. And Jesus was glad to have her. Glad to have her. See, the Pharisees, like Paul, who were legalistic about their own righteousness, they never saw the graciousness and the beauty of God. It was just transactional for them. It was nothing more than a stage that they could use to promote the reward of their own stately position. His law was like a staircase that led to their own vanity. A position that afforded them favor with man and all the comforts that would go along with such a position. In other words, friends, they did not see God as gracious. They saw Him as a utility to get what they really wanted. Or maybe to say it like this. They didn't want God for God. They wanted God for His benefits. They removed the benefactor from the benefits. And they did it all while claiming to love that benefactor. And Paul was given eyes to see that all of that was just garbage. He came to see the bankruptcy of his own soul in his own religious performances. And so he was happy to turn them all in and welcome his weakness. Welcome his weakness. Throwing himself entirely on the grace of God to fill up what was lacking in him. And so I wonder for you, friend, have you gotten to that point in your life? Have you gotten to a place in your life where you understood that all that you thought were depositing good deeds into your God account have come to accomplish nothing? And so you're prepared to lose them all. Have you gotten there? Are you completely comfortable with trashing your spiritual resume? Or are you holding on tightly to your religious traditions or your accomplishments as a way of proving your status before God in the world? Well, if that's you, if you want to hold on to those things, if that's, if that's you, you should know that Paul is probably right when he says that if anyone thinks that they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And yet Paul counts it all as garbage in terms of accomplishing his greatest need, his right standing with God. See, we live in a city that attempts to define people by their security status, by their educational levels, by their place of work. And maybe you've been led to believe, friend, that since you are advanced in the world or you understand yourself to be a pretty upstanding person in society or even in the church, God must then really love you. Since you grew up maybe in, a, in the church, since you don't ascribe to maybe some other faith tradition, maybe you ascribe to this one, since you value the Bible, maybe even you read it once in a while, since you even pray to Jesus, you think God has justified you because of those things. Well, friend, if that's you, if you believe your traditions, your accomplishments, your own morality, even your religiosity are the grounds for your justification, that is, grounds for your innocence, then you should know, as Paul says here, all those things are dung. They're all rubbish. Isaiah says back in the Old Testament even that all of our good deeds are like dirty rags before God. You see, friends, man looks on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward accomplishments. God looks on the heart. And what he sees, friends, when he looks on the heart is not a ledger of good religious deeds weighed against bad religious deeds. No, what he sees is the bright light of his holiness weighed against the backdrop of the darkness of our own souls. So listen, God does not help those who help themselves. That's not true. It's nowhere in the Bible. Because it's not true. God helps those who know that they cannot help themselves. 
That's who. Those that look to Him for help. That's the secret that Paul found. But it gets even better than that. The thing that Paul found. See, God is not just interested in leveling people to understand their weakness, their need. That's one side of the coin. There's another side that I've already referenced in that prostitute. And that is the beauty and the graciousness of the person of Christ. God not only wants to see our need, He wants to He wants us to see our need so that we would find our answer in the beauty of who He is as a person. And that's exactly where Paul goes. He counts all, he counts all things as loss. Why? Second point. For the sake of knowing Christ. For the sake of knowing Christ. He even says, for the sake of knowing the worth of Christ. The value of Christ. One commentator explains these verses like a ship's captain that in the midst of trouble throws all of their valuables over the side of the boat so that they do not crash but make it safely home. See, the ship's captain understands that in the face of danger, all the wealth in the world isn't worth holding on to if it means you wind up at the bottom of the ocean. And that's what Paul found to be true. Not only did his external religiosity accomplish him nothing, more importantly, it didn't get him what he really wanted. Christ. He didn't get him Jesus. So in the midst of the danger of a life without true righteousness, Paul threw out all of his earthly wealth in order to gain the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. I count six times in this passage, six times where Paul references his need to have Jesus. His need to have the person of Christ. Not just his benefits. Jesus. Six times. Look in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as lost. Here it is. For the sake of Christ. That is, for the sake of having Christ. Verse 8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 8 again. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Verse 8 again. In order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9. And be found in Him. Verse 10. As clear as it is that I may know Him. We've already looked back in chapter 1 previously, where in chapter 1, verse 20, we saw that with full courage, He desires that Christ be honored, whether living or dying, to live as Christ and die as gain. And why does He say die as gain? Because if I depart and die, I get to be with Jesus. And He says that's far better. And he goes on to say after this in chapter 3, verse 20, we await a Savior. We await Jesus. Paul wanted Christ. Paul was willing to lose it all to gain Christ. Are you? Does this sound, friend, like the Christianity that you've been taught? Does this sound like the Christianity that you believe? Is this the heaven that you long for? The gaining and the enjoying of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, it's not the Christianity I grew up believing. Even though I wasn't a Pharisee, the Jesus that I believed in was a lot like the Pharisees, but from the other side. See, remember, the Pharisees loved God because of how they could use His law to give them the life that they wanted. That is, they didn't so much as love God, though they said they did. What they loved was how they could use God's law to get them what they wanted. And there's a similar arrow, I think, on the other side of things. So the Christianity that I grew up believing in didn't focus on obeying the law to get me something, but it did focus on believing in Jesus just so that I could get eternal life. 
and not go to hell. Because you know, that's the better of two options. So you see, just like the Pharisees, I used Jesus to get what I really wanted. Eternal life. But unlike the Pharisees, I didn't pay close attention to the law. But either way, we both made the same mistake. We loved Jesus for what he could do for us. We didn't love Jesus for Jesus. And that's where Paul is so wonderfully helpful and so wonderfully clarifying for us. He counted everything as lost because he wanted to know Jesus. Know Jesus. The reason why Piper earlier said that if we do not see him and savor him as our greatest fortune, we have not obeyed or believed the gospel is because Paul understands that righteousness and everlasting joy and life comes not merely in loving the benefits of Christ, but it's in loving Christ himself. Loving Christ himself. And by loving Christ, we then receive those benefits. When Paul uses that word know there, when he says that he wants to know Christ, he's not talking about giving everything up so that he could gain some information about Jesus. It's not what he's talking about. He's using the word know there like I would use the word know of my wife. So you guys might say, I know, Nathan, I know Andy. And I would say back to you, yeah, but you don't know Andy like I know Andy. Right? And you would all understand what I'd mean by that. You would understand that it wasn't just I had more facts about Andy. You would understand that I was talking something about something deeper. You would understand that I was referencing how I knew her soul. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's how he's using this word know. That's what Paul means when he says that he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Knowing the soul of Him, the depth of Him, not just information about Him. Paul's talking about knowing the person of Christ in all of His breadth, width, height, and depth. He doesn't merely, Paul does, he doesn't merely want the benefits of Christ's righteousness. He wants Christ. He wants Jesus. And when you want Christ, then you can come to really know and enjoy the benefits because you want Him for Him. Not just for what He can do for you. And friends, that's how you can really know if you've been changed by grace and for glory. When you come to see the beauty of Christ and you trust Him for everything to be made beautiful because you love Him for Him. You really love Him. Not just for what He can do for you. You stop using Jesus and you... Stop using Jesus and try to manipulate situations. Most notably, you stop trying to manipulate your own religiosity to gain Christ's favor. You just confess your brokenness and you see your need for Him. Him. Paul just wanted Jesus for Jesus. No matter what may come. He didn't try and control Jesus by by His behavior. Clearly, he was perplexed at times. There was times he couldn't quite put it together. But Jesus was so good to him, he was willing to lose it all. And as a result, the joy that he experienced from following Jesus, it was real. It was pure. So much so that he was willing to even, as it says there in verse 10, to suffer just to taste more of the life of Christ. He wanted to suffer. He desired to suffer because he wanted to know more and experience more of His Savior that did the same. Far too many people love Jesus for what Jesus will do for them. Which explains why they don't follow Him. Explains why they complain about not getting their way. They don't want to know Jesus Christ as Lord. 
They want to know Jesus Christ as benefactor and leave themselves as Lord. And that, says Paul, is not Christianity. And it's not grace. It's not beauty. It's not joy. Authentic Christianity loves to talk about Jesus, read about Jesus, pray to Jesus, study Jesus, be with Jesus' people. Authentic Christianity is glad to have Jesus Christ as Lord and not try to take that position away from Him. Authentic Christianity doesn't see church, Bible, prayer, giving, evangelism, discipleship, yes, even suffering. They don't see them as obligations to bear. No, these are the means of conversing with the one of whom our soul loves. Because He first loved us. And as this happens, the frame of our souls as Christians begins to change. When we see him this way. Like Paul, we begin to desire less and less of the acclaim of our fellow man and our world. The less and less we throw up our MDivs up on the wall in our offices. And the more that we want to know Christ, serve his world. It has been said that you become what you behold. If you ever heard that statement before, you become what you behold. And so if you behold Christ, You can't help but put on the spirit of humility, long-suffering, forgiveness. You can't help but pursue the lost, build up the saved. You can't help but know righteousness, which is what Paul is after here. Because you've beheld Christ, the one who is righteous. You've beheld Christ and you found Him to be of surpassing worth. He's better than everything else. And so Christ begins to change you like He told us we needed to be changed from the inside out. It's when you come to love Jesus like this, see Him, know Him like this, it is no trouble to have no confidence in the flesh. And it is so much easier to put all of your confidence for righteousness, for change, in Jesus alone. There's no trouble to stop posturing regarding all of your religious accomplishments in favor of praising God for the favor that He has shown you by revealing Himself to you. If you've traveled overseas for the work of Christ, you've seen this probably before. Much more common scene. I've seen this many times when I travel overseas. People like this, like Paul here. There's been more than a few occasions when I've trained faithful men and women who loved Christ, as was evidenced by their willingly putting themselves in harm's way for the sake of His glory. These brothers and sisters had no interest in telling me all that they had done. That's amazing to me. They just loved Jesus for Jesus. And then they would sit under my teaching. Why? They were not impressed with me, folks. They were impressed with the Savior. And that's what they wanted to learn more about. They didn't want to, they didn't want to tell me about all. Matter of fact, most of the time when you talk to these people overseas, you have to draw out the suffering they've done for Christ. They're not quick to talk about these things. They just love Christ for Christ and they're willing to go through it all to advance His good name and enjoy Him and taste of His experiences. They would sit there quietly and listening just to learn more about Him. And when a country full of people trying to make a name for themselves, we could learn a lot from these people, from our brothers and sisters overseas. Loving Christ so much that they would willingly want to walk in the same roads of pain and suffering just as Christ did, sharing in Christ's sufferings as Paul says here. In verse 10, just so they could be like Him in their deaths. They want to be like Jesus in their deaths. 
that they may know the completion of their salvation. That's the joy of the resurrection. That's what Paul's referencing there in verse 11. Christ not only died for sin, friend, but he was raised for sin. Raised for sin. And that is the promise of all of us, to all of us that are in Christ. That's the promise that we want to know. We want to know the joy of experiencing a new body in the new heavens and new earth while looking face to face with Christ. All those difficulties passed away. All the bad gone. All the good fully present in the presence of the glory of Christ. And that's what we mean by the joy of the resurrection. That's what Paul means there in verse 11 regarding by any means possible we want to get there. He may attain the resurrection from the dead. So to be clear, friends, he's not talking about effort. He's talking about commitment. He's willing to do anything to see the fullness of the promises of Christ come through in the resurrection of the dead. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. We count all things as loss so that we may know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord and know how sweet it is to know Him. We've sung about that this morning. And so I wonder if you want to know Him like this. We want to know Jesus as Paul knows him. Paul does here. Willing to set aside religiosity and a claim of your fellow man just to gain Jesus, to enjoy Jesus. Some of you might say, yes, I want to know Jesus like that. What, Nathan, must I do? We'll look down there in verse 9. Paul says that righteousness, again, does not come from the law. It doesn't come from you doing something earn God's favor. But that which comes through, he says, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness where? Those two words are critical. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See friends, your intoxication of Christ maybe right now is the very presence of that Spirit that Paul promised back up there in verse 3 that saves you. And so my Appeal to you then would be to lay claim to the work of Christ by faith, by believing, by trusting, by saying, not me, all him. He's so great. He's so worthy. I'm not. I know that I can have all that I need in the beauty of Jesus Christ. And I want him. Lay claim to that. Trust wholly Jesus, not yourself, nothing of yourself. Affirming that God has graciously given you eyes to see him. To see the beauty and the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus as Lord. Seeing that we have done nothing to earn our salvation. Seeing and believing Christ has done everything that we need. Christ, the one that was fully God and fully man and lived a sinless life, was able to make a sinless sacrifice for us that believe on the cross, atoning for sin, paying for sin in the redemptive blood that was shed for us. It was purchased there 2,000 years ago. Believing that, trusting that entirely. Resurrecting from the grave on the third day. Repenting and believing that. Turning away from the sin that put him there. Trusting the promise of Christ in that event. In that true event. And so for you too, beloved, that have trusted Christ, the more that you are aware of your failure, some of you are like that. Many of you are maybe aware of your failures. Maybe aware of your guilt. Maybe aware of your even experiencing Christ like Paul does in this passage. If that's you, Christian, if you're more aware of all your guilt, shame, loss, maybe not even experiencing Jesus like that, if that describes you, let me remind you first, as we see here, 
that your righteousness is not based on your record, but on your Redeemer's. It's based on your Redeemer's record. That's Christianity. That's what Paul's saying here. Your righteousness is not based on your ability to perform righteousness. Your righteousness is based upon your Redeemer's record to perform righteousness for you. And I'm pretty good. He was good at it. I'm pretty sure he got that right. We know that in the resurrection, right? His work is finished for you, Christian. So come to Jesus and find rest. Come to Jesus and find rest. And as to those of you that follow Christ but seem to be lacking the fervor of Paul in this passage for just knowing the work of Christ, let me encourage you to take a look down there at verse 12. I'm going to read that to you. These These are God's words to you. If you're a Christian and you're wrestling with not knowing Jesus like Paul does. Listen to these words that come right after this. We'll look at them next week. Verse 12. After having just explained everything we just went through, he then says, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because, so important, because Christ Jesus Put this in parentheses who you write in your Bible. Has made. It's done. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, Paul understands that Christ has made him completely right. But he also understands that he hasn't quite owned up to that righteousness that is already true. And yet, he does one thing, he says. Did you catch it? Actually, two things. One thing in two parts. He forget what lies behind. And he strains towards what lies ahead in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that's God's words to you, friend. That's God's word to you, beloved. Forget what lies behind. So many of you are so riddled by what you have done. Take Paul's words here. Forget what lies behind. Christ has paid for that. Now you just leave here and strain forward to what lies ahead of the upward call of God in Christ. Let that go. It was paid for 2,000 years ago. You're righteous. God loves you. And His Son. Forget what lies behind. Strive towards Christ and know that as you do, you are striving towards the one that is of surpassing worth. Do this remembering that first verse in chapter 3, to rejoice in the Lord. For as you strive to make Christ your own, He has already made you His own. It's already done. And you do this, all this happens by His grace and for His God, we thank You for grace. We thank You for grace upon grace. Think of that song, Father. Grace, grace. God's grace. Greater than all of our sin. Thank You, God, that You have made us Your own through the work of Christ. God, that's what we needed. We could not earn our way by performing good enough to be holy. We're 
dead in our sins. And so thank you that as we just sung before this sermon, heaven came to us and the work of Christ, the person of Christ. And so God, teach us, train our hearts to love Christ and see his surpassing worth, and not just love him for his benefits. And as we do that, God, humble us, sanctify us, and make us willing to count it all as loss, that we might spend ourselves for the excellency of Christ's glory. That other people may come to know the surpassing worth as they are trying to find worth in other places, dead places. May we be a people that are so intoxicated by the love of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the worth of Christ, as we have seen it by your grace, if you've given us eyes to see it, God, may we warmly, quickly, confidently invite them in to Jesus, that they may love Him and enjoy Him forever. And God, help us to forget what lies behind, to strive forward what lies ahead. And God, for those that do not yet believe, may they come to believe and see the beauty of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And may they throw themselves upon Him, confessing their need and their only answer in Jesus. May we count it all as loss that we may gain Christ and be found in Him. That's our prayer, God. Receive our lives for Jesus' glory. Thank You for grace. We pray in Jesus' name.